if you start work full-time at 21 years of age, and you work until you're 65, you retire at 65, and it's, it's full-time, let's say full-time is 45 hours. I know for many of you all that's part-time, I got that. But let's assume it's 45 hours. If you work full-time, you've got two weeks of vacation, no major interruptions. Between 21 and 65, you will have worked about 100,000 hours. Now, uh, between 21 and 65, if you count up all the hours that there are in life, you've got about 300, I want to say 340,000 hours about there. Now, if you sleep during that time at all, and you sleep eight hours a day, and again, for many of y'all, that would seem like a vacation, but if you're sleeping eight hours a day from 21 to 65, then you will have slept about 128,000 hours. 340,000 minus 128,000 leaves you about 240,000 hours, 242,000 hours of conscious time between 21 and 65. 200, got this? 240,000 hours of conscious, your awake time between 21 and 65. Of that time, you are spending 100,000 of it at work. That's about 40%. And that doesn't take into account getting ready for work and commuting to work and having to work overtime and all that. And so the, the average American in the workforce between 21 and 65 will spend 50% of their conscious life At work, or involved with work. Now, why that's significant for us this morning is because Barna tells us that the adult churchgoer, uh, the average adult churchgoer will say that my faith has nothing to do with my work. Isn't this amazing? My, my, My faith has no influence on, on my work. They're two separate categories completely. Now, that's an incredible travesty when you figure half of your conscious life is not impacted, is not impacted by your faith, especially when you think of the opportunities you have at work and the people you run into at work and the temptations that are at work and the work you do at work. And to not have your faith impact that is a significant loss. So what does it look like for your faith to impact your work? You know, what's it look like? We got pictures in our mind. Some obnoxious, hyper-conservative fundamentalist person who's judging everybody, who's waving a big Bible in everyone's face, and who's kind of condemning folk, and who's preaching to everybody. Is that what it means to have your faith influence your work? I would say that primarily it's not about any kind of action, what you do or don't do. It stems from before that. I think we see that in the book of Esther. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me. The book of Esther. If you've been reading through this book, you know what? You have finished Esther this past week. Let me show you some. Book of Esther. Fascinating book. Because book of Esther happens during the Persian Empire. This is the Persian Empire. Pretty intense empire. Way back when, Egypt ruled this place, but Egypt only kind of ruled like this. Then after Egypt was out, Assyria came on the scene, 750 to 612. Assyria is, see, there's its capital, Nineveh, that's where Jonah had to go. And uh, the capital of, of, I mean, the Assyrian Empire, they went down into Egypt and they took a little bit more space. Then from 612 to, what was it, uh, 539, Babylon rules. Now, this is 
Babylon. Babylonia. See, Babylon's down in here. This is the capital of Babylon. And they ruled, and they got this much as well, but just, it's growing just a little bit more. When Persia comes on the scene, they're from 539 to, to 333, okay, these guys, massive land, right? These guys got into, into, into Greece. In 300, Alexander the Great was going to take over Persia. The Greek Empire. And it's even larger, of course. It's incorporating a good amount of Europe. The Greeks ran the world between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We've said this a couple weeks back. Esther's your last book in the Old Testament. Next historical thing that happens is Matthew. And so between Esther and Matthew, what you've got going on, for the most part, is Alexander ruling the world. In 127, uh, Alexander loses, the Greeks lose, uh, and it's a little bit fuzzy, uh, Rome takes over, basically. 27 uh, BC, Rome is really established. Empire's greater yet. But here's the deal. When Assyria took over, came in and beat up uh, Israel, the north, they scattered, they took all their people, right, captive, and scattered them through the Assyrian Empire. When Babylon came in, Babylon came and wiped out Judah's southern kingdom and took all their people and scattered them through the Babylonian Empire. So when Persia gets on the throne, they inherit all these Jewish people who've been displaced from their home. And so we mentioned this last week, Cyrus, the first king of Persia, says, any Jewish person who wants to go back home and rebuild the temple, you can. But... From Ezra and Nehemiah, we find that only 70,000 go back. There are millions of Jewish people who've been exiled. And only 70,000. The scripture says that it's just a remnant that goes back. And this is, this is amazing. It says that those whose, gods, whose hearts were moved by God went back. Which means he didn't move an awful lot of folks' hearts. He left them hanging out in Persia. And so the, the Persian, the Jewish exiles in Persia are thinking this. They're thinking, yeah, these guys that go back, they get to go hang back out in the Holy Land. And they get to be around Christian stuff, religious stuff. They're building the temple. They're building the wall around the Holy City. they got the priesthood going on and sacrifices. That's all wonderful for those guys. God is back in the Holy Land, I guess, with them. But what about us? What about us who are scattered all over this, this place who can't go back for whatever reason, perhaps? What about us? Does God care about us? And hence you get the book of Esther that's going to answer that question. And so let me give you some, um, t- we tell you the story real quick. First person we come across in, in, in the book of Esther is a guy by the name of Xerxes. By the way, you can leave the slide up there. But let me mention this. Esther is the most celebrated of the Old Testament books. If you were to go to Tel Aviv, March 24th through 26th this past year, uh, you would have got off the plane to parades and costume-clad folk and a massive carnival th- feeling. You would feel like you were in New Orleans during Mardi Gras. They were celebrating Purim, which is the most joyous J- Jewish holiday which commemorates the book of Esther. And when you're in Purim, one of the one of the things you're supposed to do is you go to synagogue where they read for you the book of Esther. But this is read full audience participation. There is booing and hissing and stomping of feet and cheering. They hand out noisemakers at the door. It's just a huge, huge deal. Most celebrated book. Esther is also the most secular book in the Bible. Because in the entire book of Esther, you don't find the name of God ever mentioned. You find no references to the temple. Or the law, or Abraham, or, or David. 
Nothing like that. So much so that when they started putting the Bible together, you can imagine some Jewish rabbis were going, I don't know, it doesn't say anything. I'm not, I'm not sure. Well, we'll get into why they included it in, in a moment. But the story, Xerxes, first person you come across, uh, Esther 1.1, 1, 1. you find a guy named Ahuserus, your text may say, that's his Persian name, or he's more well known as Xerxes, and he's the king. Xerxes was the king of uh, Persia between 486 and 465. Something, just stick this in the back of your head. His grandfather was a a guy named Darius, if you remember Darius from your Bible, who was kindly affectioned towards Daniel. So it's kind of running in their family, uh, affection towards the Jewish exiles. Kind of just throw that there. But through secular sources, what we know about Xerxes is that he was a party waiting to happen. Xerxes was really irresponsible with his kingship, his kingdom. He just loved to party. He was often drunk. He loved all the things that went along with partying. That's just who Xerxes was. And so it shouldn't surprise us. In Esther chapter 1, first place we see Xerxes, what is he doing? He's having a party. And he's drunk, right? And he's drunk, he's partying with these guys, and he's drunk with... And so he, he, he sets out a decree, he's got this great idea, hey, let's bring in Vashti, it's his queen. And he, the reason why he wants to bring Vashti in is because she's lovely to look at. And so he brings in Vashti, he asks Vashti to come in, commands that she come in, and the text says wearing her crown, and tradition says that's all Vashti's supposed to be wearing. And so Vashti, you know, she kind of... I'm not going to do that. And you say, that's right, you go, girl. But you've got to be careful about defying the king. Even somebody, this will come back later on, even somebody like Vashti, who's the queen, you defy the king, and now she's deposed of. She's out of there. She's done. Well, in time, the king gets lonely. He's looking for a queen. And so his counselors decide, let's do this. Let's have a beauty contest. And we're going to have this beauty contest. And tradition says they had about 400 gals from all over the empire. Most beautiful uh, virgins. And the king gets to choose which one is going to be the new queen. That's where you've got Xerxes. Next guy we find in there is a guy by the name of Mordecai. Now, Mordecai is a Jewish guy. But you want to, let me mention this. Put this in the back of your mind. You'll come out later. Uh, Mordecai is a Jewish guy who's from the tribe of Benjamin. Real important. So Mordecai, we don't know a whole lot about his vocation. What we do know is he had limited access to the palace. He had limited access to the harem. We know that he didn't—he wasn't married, didn't have any family. Because of that, many have speculated that, that Mordecai was a eunuch in service for the king. That's what he did. We do know that he had an adopted daughter, actually his kid cousin, and, and he, he loved this gal. Her name was Hadassah, good Jewish name. But Mordecai thought that was a dangerous name for where they were living. So he renamed her Esther, which was a Persian name. Now, what you got, third person, Esther. We know several things about Esther. She's very Jewish, just like her, her even though she's got this Persian name. It's like Mordecai. She is uh, an orphan. Her parents were killed when she was little. Somehow Mordecai ends up raising her. We're not sure exactly how that worked out. But the third thing you want to know about Esther that Scripture says is that she was very pretty. Now the Hebrew text, if you think of all the... It doesn't often describe physical appearances. It, do, it doesn't do that. So whenever it does do that, we like underline and we circle it because it really is, is making a point here. And it lets us know that Esther 
was lovely in form and features. Which means Esther was a knockout, right? I mean, she was drop-dead gorgeous gal. And so you've got to keep, keep all, of, all, of, all of this in mind, right? You've got uh, this drop-dead gorgeous gal, her, her adopted dad, Mordecai's working at the palace, so they probably only live a few blocks from the palace. The palace has got this huge beauty contest going on, looking for the most beautiful women in the world. And there's Esther just a couple blocks away from it, drop-dead gorgeous. Of course, she gets caught and brought into the palace. She's, she takes place in the beauty contest. She wins, believe it or not. And so she becomes the new queen of Persia, unbelievable. Now there's a sidebar in this story. And what happens is her uncle, her cousin Mordecai, is hanging out outside the palace gates one day. And he's outside of eyesight but not earshot and he hears a couple of guards talking about an assassination plot. They're going to knock off the king. And so he hears all of this, and so he's writing this down. And, and as soon as the guards leave, he sends this to Esther and says, Esther, these guys are going to wipe out the king. You better go tell them. So Esther takes care of it. She, she lets the king know, there's this guy here, you need to know, king named Mordecai, who told me about this plot, and here you go. And so the king, they research this thing, investigate it. They find it to be true, and so they execute those guards and then just go on with life. That will come back. Hang on that. Next guy we find in the story. His name is Haman. Haman is your antagonist in the story. Uh, Haman, a couple things we know about him. One, the author really wants us to know that he is an Amalekite. Now you might say, whoop-de-doo, who cares, so what, he's an Amalekite, oh well. But you notice as you read Esther, that this, this author is going over multiple times. Haman the Amalekite, the Amalekite, Haman the Amalekite, Haman, he wants you to know he was an Amalekite. And there's a reason why. If you're saying whoop-de-doo, it's because you, you might not remember that when Israel came out of Egypt and they came up alongside east side of the Jordan River, first group of people they come across are the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were dead set on annihilating, destroying the Jews. And these Jews had just been out of slavery a year. They didn't have any swords. They didn't have any armor. They didn't have any weapons. And so these, 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 these slavery Jews, people are walking, and all of a sudden in front of them are an army with clad guys with weapons and, and armor. And the Jews are going, what are you doing? And anyhow, there's a battle. And somehow, lo and behold, God, I think, the Jews win. Well, well, Saul, King Saul, multiple years later, is remembering this. There's bad blood now between the Amalekites and the Jewish people. And King Saul goes on the rampage and says, we're going to wipe out the Amalekites. And so he tries to annihilate them all. And he almost succeeds, but a couple get away. So the Amalekite line continues. Haman is an Amalekite. Now, remember, Mordecai was not just an Israelite. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. Guess what tribe Saul was from? Benjamin. And so you've got Mordecai, who was an Israelite, and a Benjamite specifically, uh, back that ancient rivalry against Haman representing the Amalekites. Bad, bad blood going on. So you, what happens at one point is uh, Haman 
is, is, is uh, elevated in the kingdom. Another thing you need to know, Haman is second in command. The king uh, granted him all kinds of power. Remember, historically, the king was not interested in administrating, so he gave all those duties to Haman. You just kind of be the king, and I'll enjoy all the uh, accoutrements of it, but you do the work. And so that was going on. So Haman loved this. Everywhere he went, people would bow down to him. It's a sign of honor and recognition that he was the second in command. Everyone bowed down except Mordecai. We don't know exactly why, because it's not worship, and there's nothing in the Mosaic Law system that says you can't do that. Most probably, Mordecai knew that Haman was an Amalekite and was just not interested in giving him that kind of of honor. And so uh, you can imagine this goes over real well with, with Haman. And so he's, he's ticked off all about. But when he realizes that Mordecai is a Jewish person, especially a Benjamite, then he gets this great idea. He says, <laughs> I'm going to finish what my fathers weren't able to. I'm going to avenge the blood of my fathers. Everything that Saul has done. The Jewish people are in trouble now. And so he pulls the strings. He's number two in the, the nation. Not a, not a problem. To come up with a decree that on such and such a date, all the Jewish people in the entire nation, everybody should rise up in arms and destroy them. Well, well, one day Mordecai is going to work, right? He's at the corner, he's getting ready to cross, he's waiting for light to change, and he's looking at the telephone pole, and there's, there's tractor pull Saturday night, and there's lose weight now, and there's make money from home. And then there's a one that says, on such and such a date, annihilate all the Jews. It's like, oh, it's that. And it's got, a, it's got a royal seal. So he pulls this thing off. Yes, it's a decree on such and such a date. Annihilate all the Jews. And he's, aha. So he folds this thing up. He sends it to Esther. Esther, will you read this? You kind of know the king. Make something happen. Fix it. And Esther says, oh, no, you don't understand the way it works here in the palace, Mordecai. Remember Vashti. Okay? See, if the king calls you, you have to come or they kill you. And if the king doesn't call you and you come, they kill you. It's the way it works here. And I haven't been called in 30 days. And so you know what? I'll tell you what. Next time he calls me, I'll bring this thing and I'll present it. And, and Mordecai says, no, oh, no, 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 no. Puts a little pressure on her. Finally, she decides, okay, I'm going to go. So she goes and she invites the king and Haman to, to a series of, of banquets where she's going to make her request. So Haman... Leaves this thing where Esther invites him to a banquet. Uh, keep in mind, Mideast, or ancient Mideast, eating with someone was a sign of great honor. To invite someone to dinner was a sign of deep, deep loyalty and friendship. And so Haman walks away from this thing. He's been invited to, to, to lunch by the queen herself. And so he's thinking, man, this uh, can't get better for me. Life is going phenomenal. I just, it just can't get better. The queen herself is recognizing who I am. This is great. But on his way out of the palace, guess what? Everyone's bowing down except Mordecai. And he's just, so he's tricked off. He's just, he knows that one day, coming up soon, all the Jews are going to be wiped out, including Mordecai. But he's just, so he gets home and he's throwing, so whatever. He's upset and his wife pulls him aside and kind of settles him down and says, listen, knucklehead. It's kind of, wives do this sometimes. Uh, not mine, but all the rest of y'all's. And, and he says, listen, you are second in command. Who is this Mordecai? Just do what you need to do. Tell you what, build the gallows tonight. In the morning, go see Xerxes. 
and tell him you want to kill this guy. Piece of cake, it's solved. And then we'll get the rest of the Jews later. Well, well, Haman thinks this is a great plan. And so he's building this gallows all night. He's having this thing built and make it taller and bigger. And we're going to... Meanwhile, back at the palace that night, king can't sleep. Typically, this would not be a problem uh, for uh, someone who's letting go of all his responsibility and lives drunk half the time. But, but for some reason, he can't sleep. And so he calls in a, a royal reader. He says, royal reader, come in here. I need to get to sleep. You've got to bore me here. So find something out of my archives. Get some agricultural reports. I don't care where it is. And, and just read these to me. And that would be, I need to get to sleep. So the reader grabs the scroll that talks about that assassination plot that Mordecai foiled. And so the reader's reading this thing. And thing, thing says, yeah, yeah, wait, wait, wait. I, I remember that. Tell me, royal reader, what did I do for Mordecai? Did I, did I alleviate all of his family from taxes? Did I name a street after him? Did I throw a party for him? What did I do? And the reader said, no, no, king, no, 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 no streets. It doesn't look like you did anything. And this is a major political faux pas. Not just because you should be kind to people who foil assassination plots against you. But because what he wants to communicate to the people, all the, all, 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 all the, all the peasant people, he wants to communicate to them that if you ever hear of a plot to assassinate me, if you ever hear of, of, of uh, 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 thoughts of a coup, uh, if, you, if you ever hear of anyone talking bad about me, if you tell me about it, windfall of stuff coming your way. That's what, that's what he wants to communicate. But instead, what he communicated was, if you tell me, I'm going to blow you off. So he's thinking, ah, we've got to fix this, but I'm not sure how to fix it. So he's, he's, he's up all the rest of the night trying to think, what do I do for this guy? What do I do for this guy? What do I do for this guy? And all of a sudden, it's morning time. And there's a knock at his door, and he opens the door, and it's Haman. And Haman is there, remember why Haman's there, right? To ask permission to uh, execute an enemy of the state, Mordecai. Now, the king is there to ask counsel on what to do to honor a friend of the state, Mordecai. And so the king says, okay, listen, Haman, I'm going to go first because I'm the king, so I get to go first. So you solve my issue, then I'll help you solve yours. Uh, uh, there's this guy in my kingdom, Haman. He's a neat guy, and I owe him everything. Just a wonderful, wonderful guy. And you know what? I have just not honored him the way I'm supposed to. I don't think the people know that I've honored him the way I'm supposed to. How can I honor this guy? Well, you know, we'll start turning in Haman's mind. Going, huh. Huh. Who's king talking about here well he's been awful nice to me the last several months he's given me all kinds of power even yesterday the queen herself invited me to a a a special banquet with her later on this day and wow i mean he's talking about me so he says king 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 king. this is what you need to do i mean if you're serious and all i mean if you're really really serious this is what you should do uh go to your closet and get out a robe that no one has ever worn but you. You know, one that's got a big presidential type of seal on the back of it. Just no one's ever worn this but you. King clothes, right? And then, then wrap this guy in it. And then, and then go to your garage and pick out the presidential limo. You know, the steed that no one has ever been on but you. The presidential limo. It's just everyone knows when they see this that, oh, that's something the king has. Just pick that out. And then what you should do is find a trusted person of yours, a servant, 
high-ranking servant, though it's real important. And you have him uh, put together a special parade in this guy's honor. And then this guy gets in the limo without you, king, by himself in the presidential limo, wearing the president's type clothes, king's clothes. And then we get the parade going through town, and this trusted servant of yours walks in the very front of it, like with bodyguards and stuff. I'm sure on the side I can see all these movies I've seen. And, And that's going on. But then he's announcing to all the people, hey, all you people, this guy back here, he's the one the king really wants to honor. And you think, well, that's kind of a stupid thing. What, you know, I'd think, you know, give me money or an extra week vacation or something. I mean, what, what's this, three or four minutes of letting people look at me? What is that about? But, but, but actually, this, this request, that, that proposal that Haman is making is just dripping with ambition. Because nobody wears that robe except the king or someone who has the king's authority. No one gets in the motor, king's motorcade except uh, the king. And so when this guy, wearing kingly clothes, is traveling around in the king's limo, waving at people, all the people will know that this guy, he's got the power of the king. Now, either Haman's doing a couple things here. Either A, he's setting himself up for a a, a coup. And he's getting all the people to realize that he's got the power. Uh, At the very least, though, he's requesting to be co-regent. I'm going to rule the empire with the king. That's what he's looking to do. That's what's going on. And so you can imagine what, what, what Haman's face was look like when the king said, oh, that's a good idea. I want you to go do it for Mordecai. Can you imagine? So he does it, a humiliating thing, and he gets Mordecai, and he, he leads him on this parade, and he announces he's the guy the king wants to and he does all this, right? And then he goes, and Haman is having a really bad day. He's having a bad, bad day, and he's thinking this can't get worse, but it does get worse, because he's at home pulling out his hair going, what happened? What went wrong? I've got this gallows. I don't know what to do with it now. King's going to know what to do with it, because soon some people come to take Haman to the special banquet with, with the king and the queen, and so he's there at the banquet, and the king's says, okay, Esther, now tell me, what do you want? And Esther says, I want to be alive. King says, what 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 are you talking about? She says, King, there's somebody in your empire that's trying to kill me and trying to destroy my family. And and the king stands up in a rage. Who in the world would try to hurt you? I'll kill my women. They're dead meat. I'm the king. Well, Haman's sitting there, right? Go, (laughs) ah. Uh, I gotta go to the restroom. He's, in, he's really, uh, what is he thinking right now? And then the king says, Who? Oh! And Esther says, That vile Haman. Yeah, well, the next is, is the king takes that vile Haman and says, You built that great gallows. I know exactly what to do with it. And he puts Haman on it. And Mordecai is now put in the position. He was just positioned, right? He was just told that all the people were told he's co regent of the uh, Persian Empire. And so he is in a place now of power to come up with rules and laws that uh, save the Jewish people and actually establish the Jewish people. And everyone lives happily ever after except Haman, right? And you're going, wow, that's a fun story. I could see where you could get into that with noisemakers. And every time you'd say Naaman's, Naaman's name, Haman's name, it was boo, hiss, may his name rot forever. That's what the people would say. So I, that would be a fun story. But why does it exist? I mean, why is this here? Just because it's a fun story? There's at least two reasons that it's here. First lesson that we get out of this is that 
my life is in God's hands. Remember, the people were thinking. These, this, Ezra and Nehemiah, what happens to the people who go back? Esther, what happens to the people who are still in exile? And they're thinking, all those people who go back, God is there, but what about here? And the book of Esther is to let us know that God is intimately involved in the details of our life through his hand of providence. Providence, what is providence? Providence is that God is in control of all the, the specifics working out his plan. Providence is God working in a stealthy manner. God, providence is God working in the shadows. But he's working. He's right there. I think through the story real quick. It just so happens that this pagan nation comes up with this wild idea to have a beauty contest to find a woman for the king. You know, never before in the history of the Persian Empire did they come up with such an unorthodox way to find... Never again would they do this. But they do this this one time. Of all the kings in the Persian Empire, there's only one king that would be open to this idea, Xerxes. Just so happens. And it just so happens that the most beautiful girl in the kingdom is living just two blocks from the palace. And it just so happens that she's Jewish and it just so happens that she's available. And it just so happens that she wins the beauty contest. And she doesn't just win the beauty contest. She wins the hearts of the people. She doesn't just win the, the hormones of the king. She wins the heart of the king. He thinks she's incredible. He'd do anything for her. Absolutely anything. That's going to that's gonna come back. That's an important part. And, and think, of, it just so happens that Mordecai is in the right place at the right time to hear the guards come up with this assassination plot. It just so happens. And it just so happens when he told Esther, who told uh, the, the king, that they wrote this down in the archives, that they included Mordecai's name because they would not have included his name, typically. just so happens. And think about Esther for a minute. The reason why she went to the king in the first place was to plead for her life, right? And the life of her people. So she goes to the king. He, he pardons her. That doesn't surprise us a lot because he cared for her so much. Uh, she, could, she could have been killed, but, but he pardons her. But then he says, what's your request? And what does she say? She says, ah. Maybe Haman's standing right there. Maybe she knows that nobody knows that she's Jewish. And as soon as she puts it out there, she's got a death sentence on her like everybody else. She says, ah, come to me to a luncheon today. And I'll tell you then. She freezes. She, she, she just shuts down. Now, not that you would ever shut down or want to avoid a tough conversation with somebody, especially if they have authority to crush you. That's a conversation you do not want to have. Uh, that afternoon and lunch, the king says, Esther, what's your, what's, what's, what's your request? And Esther freezes up again. Ah! Can you come back tomorrow to lunch? And I'll tell you tomorrow. And then it, it just so happens that that night, Well, Haman is having a gallows built for Mordecai that the king can't sleep. And it just so happens that he doesn't go with the warm milk or counting royal sheep. He brings in a royal reader. And it just so happens, figure this, of all the scrolls they have, what are the odds that he picks up the scroll to read that just happens to have that assassination plot in it with with Mordecai? And it just so happens that the king didn't do anything for Mordecai earlier, which is what he should have done. And it just so happens... That the next morning, when, when Haman comes to see the king, Haman wants permission to wipe out Mordecai 
uh, the king wants a plan how to honor Mordecai. And it just, this, this is the most amazing one to me. It just so happens that, that it's Haman who, himself who comes up with the plan to give Mordecai so much power that he can enact and influence and change the, the laws that would destroy the Jews. It was Haman who gave him the power through his proposal. It just so happens. Wouldn't you say after a while, even if you are a deep, deep skeptic, that there's just a lot of what so happens here, man. I mean, this is an awful lot of coincidence. That's providence. Almost looks like providential, doesn't it? It looks, looks like it's been choreographed. The amazing thing to me is everybody is playing their part perfectly. Haman is still an evil person who's doing evil stuff, who's conniving, and the king is still not giving a rip about anybody but his bottle and partying, and, and Esther is, is fearful like you and I would be, and, and, and you've got Mordecai, maybe a chip on his shoulder about the Amalekites thing. They're all doing their thing, and yet somehow it's working out perfectly. What, what Romans eight twenty eight? this is a huge verse. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. You know, God could not say this if he wasn't in control of the circumstance. He was not providentially in control. The lesson for us is your life, my life, is not in the hands of the number 13 or your horoscope or your your parents or how much money you got or don't have or your own abilities. Uh, I'm sure Esther's fear, God even used that. It's, it's not in, in the hands of, of, of a Supreme Court or a president or a pagan boss. God, God's, God's a little bit bigger than those things. He's bigger than your inabilities, right? And so our lives are in the hands of God. And because of that, we can trust him. We can trust him. A second lesson I think we get out of this is not only is my life in the hands of God, but my position is from God, you know, it's interesting. Esther 4. Remember, Mordecai told Esther, go talk to the king. She said, I don't think so. Mordecai comes back and says, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your family, father's family will perish. Now, how can he say that? Because he knows the Abrahamic covenant. He knows that God has promised that through the Jewish nation, that that through a seed of the woman, through someone from Abraham, through the the star that's going to rise out of the tribe of Judah, that that someone coming from the line of David, he's going to send a Messiah that will deliver the entire world. And if all the Jews are wiped out, that can't happen. Now the Jews might not get out of this thing unscathed. You and your father's house might perish in this thing. Don't think that because no one knows you're Jewish, it's just it's going to work out well for you. But as a whole, God's will is going to be accomplished. And then he says this, And who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this? He's saying, Esther, well, why do you think you're in the palace? Are you there just because you're, you're pretty, do you think? You don't, don't you think that perhaps God made you pretty to get you where he needs you to be? You ask yourself, why do you think you're at GE or Lords or Hammett or the school system or Barron or the restaurant or the... Re- why do you think you're there? Just there because you knew the right people, you didn't know the right people. Is that why you're there, really, you think? Or is it possible that God has placed you exactly where he wants you to be 
that you might use the influence you do have for his, for his kingdom. Is that, is that not possible? Oh, man. Oh, man. I, I think so. Well, well Esther, she says, uh, uh, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. If you decide, I'm going to honor God in my position, wherever it is. You're at school, you're working someplace, you're at home. You're going to honor God in your position. What will happen from that? Well, let me back up. How do you honor God? Well, two things. One, ethics, right? When, when Bill Hybels, who's the pastor at Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago, he was President Clinton's, one of his spiritual advisors. And he said at one point, he was in the Oval Office with Clinton, and they, they had some assignments for quiet time stuff that President Clinton didn't do. And so Bill Hybels was getting on him a little bit about that. And, and, and President Clinton threw down a, a four-inch... Uh, morning briefing and said, do you see this? This has everything that's going on in the world in it today, all the financial, all the political, all the military, everything. And I am expected to know this inside and out and make the rest of my decisions throughout the day based on this. I need to know this before breakfast. I certainly do not have time. And Heibel said that what he did is he took the word of God and he put it down and he said, Mr. President, until this is more important to you than this, you will never honor God in this office. And so what you hear sometimes is you hear people who are in their workplace, wherever else, and they say, I've got to do this. I, I, I have to do this to get ahead, to stay my, keep my job. I know what God says, but I need to do this. You just need to know. No, you don't. We, we're called to, to live our lives if we're going to honor God in our positions, we're going to do it according to his word. And what happens, happens. And you know, another way, second way we honor him is we honor him with how we respond to the people we work with. Let me ask you real quick. How do you respond to your boss? Maybe talk about him or her when you know she's never collude with other people negatively. How do you respond or talk about your your colleagues kind of secretly hope they don't get that promotion, work against them. How, how do you respond to those that you supervise? You know, this is a, one of the things I hear much more than you want to hear. Somebody who's a Christian person, who people who are underneath them on the org chart, they treat in a belittling way. They, they dehumanize them. They do not honor them. They're pejorative. They're demeaning. They're sarcastic around them. Listen, if you're a boss... You have to have the hard conversations. It's not one you want. I, I got it. It's not one you want, but you have to. You cannot allow um, certain attitudes, certain actions to go, to just, just, just happen. You, you need to shut that down. And sometimes you're going to have to make a very difficult call, but you do not have to treat the person with disrespect. You don't have to treat them in a demeaning, uh, pejorative sort of way. That's how you honor God. It's your work. And if you do that, a couple results. You might end up with the corner office, believe it or not. You might end up with a seat on the company jet or keys to the, the condo in Barbados. Or, or you may, you may, there's, I mean, you got Joseph and you got Daniel and you got Esther and you got Stanley Tam and you've got all kinds of people through the history who, who have done it God's way and God has blessed them. It can happen. But 
Don't assume it's always going to. Look at, look at Esther's response. She fully expected, I'm going to go before the king, and you know what? I know the law, and I know what happened to Vashti, and I can very well be killed with this. And you know, their history is filled with people who've tried to live their lives to honor God, and they've paid for it with their life. Um, Jonathan Edwards was a pastor during uh, colonial America. Um, Theologians, educators, philosophers have said that the New World has yet to produce a mind as brilliant as Edwards. He was president of Princeton for a while. Now, well, one of the things that, that Edwards did is he put together, developed 60, I think, three, 64 resolutions for his life. This was going to be how I live my life, these resolutions. Resolution number one was resolved, all people should live to the glory of God. Resolution number two, even if nobody else does, I will. Maybe, maybe that's a resolution you need to make now. Maybe you've you've said that and you've meant it, you committed to it a long time ago. But you know what? Maybe this week, you need to say now, for this week, resolved. Everyone should live to the glory of God this week. But even if no one else does, I will. 